when people ask you, what do you do? Do not say I'm in the funeral industry because we don't manufacture from raw materials. We are in the funeral profession. I don't say I'm in the accounting industry. I don't say I'm in the doctor or medical industry. I don't say that, you know, I'm in whatever the real estate industry. If we don't look at ourselves as professionals, nobody will. But if we keep saying industry, that is very coincides with disposition. You run a crematory oven, that's industrious in a kind of a way. It's a commodity in a kind of a way. And if we keep focusing and saying that we're in the funeral industry, then what will happen is, is we will be, that'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy and we will be doing all direct disposition. If we want to be successful and we want to be part of the services that we're providing, my personal belief is we all sort of have to be saying, not just the words coming out of our mouth, has to say, I'm in the funeral profession. Welcome to the Direct Cremation Podcast with your hosts, Tyler Yamasaki and Will DeMichaelis. Hi, thank you for joining us on the Direct Cremation Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Yamasaki, CEO of Parting Pro, the number one online arrangement platform. If you like the content, please give us a like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and leave a comment. So today's guest operates on a scale unlike anyone we've had on the podcast before. He runs 30 different brands out of 53 rooftops and serves over 12,000 families each year. A fourth-generation funeral director that has built up the successful funeral group over in the southeastern United States and, you know, really seems to have no signs of slowing down. From full service and online-only funeral homes, an obituary network, a crowdfunding platform, and so much more, I'm really excited to introduce our guest, Jimmy Altmeyer. Welcome, Jimmy. Tyler, thank you very much. Thank you for having me here today. Yeah, no, thank you. It's a pleasure. You do rock a pretty impressive resume right now, I think. And before we get into the group and the funeral homes and the business, I really want to talk about you. Even though you're a fourth generation funeral director, I think your path and I think even your family's path wasn't as linear as it seems in death care. Can you tell us how you found yourself in the profession? Yes, Tyler. Thank you very much. I'm a fourth generation funeral director. My family, my great-grandfather started our business, the direction of the bishop in the Catholic Church in Wheeling, West Virginia. He started out, he had 11 children, three of which went into funeral service, my grandfather being one of them. And then his two brothers, he eventually was the successor in his generation of the funeral service. And they grew it from one location in Wheeling, West Virginia to three locations. And then uh, my father, he was thinking about a career in the military. He went to West Point. He was serving his third tour of Vietnam. Myself and my sisters were living on a base in New Mexico when my grandfather passed away suddenly. My father, he chose to leave um, the military and go back and help his mother run the family funeral homes and uh, help raise his younger brother and sister and join one of his brothers in business. And then several years after they were working together, his brother, my uncle David, had passed away leaving my dad the only person in, in his generation in the funeral service. His other two brothers and two sisters were grown, raised in Wheeling, West Virginia, outstanding people, but they took different career paths. One of his brothers works with us today, who's my uncle, Branall. He does all of our legal work, and his son, Jacob, works with us as well, doing all of our legal work uh, for our funeral homes. I went to school at Villanova University in Philadelphia. I was contemplating going to law school. And my father and I were talking about what direction that we each went in ahead. We chose to let's work together and try to grow our funeral homes together as a father-son team. And we had the three locations in Wheeling, West Virginia to start and uh, springboard from. 
And from that, we purchased some funeral homes. After purchasing some funeral homes, then we um, went ahead and opened some funeral homes from scratch. We opened the discount brand, the cremation businesses, purchased traditional funeral homes. And today we have 53 rooftops. We have about 30 different brands and we do approximately 12,000 calls a year. It's really interesting. And it's funny because I think you're the second or third person who was like, had plans to become a lawyer and ended up in a very successful death care business. So I don't know if that's like the path to success, but. We have a lot of lawyers in our family, very talented lawyers. I'm just decided with my dad and I, we really like working together. You know, we're best friends. We get along great. We decided to, to try to grow our business. And uh, I think we've done a pretty good job over the years. Yeah, it's really interesting because it does seem like there were times when the Altmaier death care lineage could have ended, right? And there was like circumstances with brought you back in or brought your dad back in. But you guys came back in and kind of crushed it after you did. From what I've seen, I think part of that exploring what else is out there, maybe having aspirations to do other things, it can give you maybe more perspective and maybe a little bit more business acumen when looking at the business of death care. I think a lot of my past impressive guests like yourself really didn't plan to be in death care and kind of found their way back. And after they did, they've done a lot of impressive things. Do you feel like kind of venturing out and coming back in has given you a little bit different perspective than someone who's born in the funeral home, grew up in the funeral home, and then like that was like the goal from day one? I wouldn't say it was the goal from day one. What happened was, once again, I went to school, went to finish college and was thinking about law school. But then when we decided to work together, I went to mortuary school at the Pittsburgh Institute of Mortuary Science. That was great education there. I was going to days in the school in the day there. I went to night Duquesne University to work towards an MBA. So I was going to school day and night. And after uh, one year of that, I mean, mortuary school was over. I never uh, ended up completing my MBA because I just had gone to school for one year straight from the morning till the night. But that gave me some different perspectives that other maybe mortuary school students didn't have by having that business acumen in the evening while I was going to mortuary school in the day. But then when I got out of school, the goal was is to try to grow our funeral homes. And that's when my dad and I started working on acquiring funeral homes near us in West Virginia and Ohio. Let's maybe get into the business side of it. You know, I want to ask you, you know, I do want to ask you about how you manage successfully so many different brands and rooftops and people. What was kind of that timeline of you growing from, you know, the three that it sounds like you springboarded from to where you are today? Like how quickly were you able to get there? It kind of like went and, and we'd start and grow a little bit and then uh, we would assimilate what we purchased and figure out the next steps, next strategies. And then we would grow a little bit more. We've kind of done that maybe about four or five cycles. So in the beginning, we just tried to buy the other traditional funeral homes in our market, which we did in West Virginia and Ohio, right across the river. Wheeling, West Virginia is on the Ohio River and there's funeral homes right on the other side in the state of Ohio. And we grew in that area. We have now between our funeral homes there, we have 12 locations. We have two care centers. We have crematory facility, a pet cremation facility, pet cemetery. We were growing in that market. Then when we were trying to grow, the time we were trying to acquire funeral homes, that's really when SCI, Stewart, and I guess the third one was Lowen at the time, they were really competing heavily to purchase funeral homes. The prices were extraordinarily high. I was like, well, maybe we could start a discount brand. And what we would do, because we just couldn't compete with the public money, we just decided to start a discount brand. And we started in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is hours drive from Wheeling, West Virginia. 
And uh, at the direction of Glenn Gould, MemKJ Marketing, he said that he would give it a shot in Virginia Beach if he was going to open a discount brand. So we started in Pittsburgh and in Virginia Beach. He was convinced that it wasn't going to work in Pittsburgh, which he was correct. We ended up opening and closing in 12 months. At the time, it was just the market there, the people there. There's a lot of funeral homes and everybody knows their funeral director personally. So it's a very difficult environment to try to start a business from scratch. The Virginia Beach market was the exact opposite. You have very few funeral homes for the population. You have consumers that have a lot of people who have moved here in the past you know, 30, 40, 50 years from uh, the military bases here. And uh, people are very open-minded. So we grew a lot in Virginia and in uh, Pittsburgh, we didn't grow very much at all. In fact, we did 12 calls in the first year in, uh, in Pittsburgh. Now we called it quits. We pulled the plug. In Virginia Beach, we did 100 calls in our first year, and then we did 200 in our second year, 300, 400. In our fifth year, we were doing 500 calls in, uh, in Virginia. That was the right marketplace to go to with the concept of the discount business. Yeah. The Pittsburgh area is really weird. They have so many funeral homes. Like There's like one on every corner. Yeah, that's really interesting. So when you couldn't really compete to acquire, you kind of built yourself. And then I'm guessing... When you can't compete, you are looking to acquire. You know, if there was a someone who was looking to maybe get their business ready for sale, are there things or characteristics that you look for that look attractive to you in a funeral home or an area or a population? For me personally, what I like is a market that's not a real big market. I'll give you an example like New York City, Miami, Dallas, Houston, Los Angeles. Because just the cost of entry into those markets, real estate is very high. Cost of advertising is very expensive. So that's try to avoid the large, large markets. And they're very dominated by the public companies. Then the real small markets are very challenging in a different way because you don't have as many calls in the market that you can go after. The funeral directors generally know everybody in the town. They have, very great, they have outstanding relationships with the people in their communities. And those communities have tended to use the same funeral homes for generations. So for us, it's middle market, like Virginia Beach is a perfect example of that. We're also in the um, area of Wilmington, North Carolina, Greensboro, North Carolina, Asheville, Hendersonville, North Carolina, then down in Pasco County, Florida, that's north of Tampa. There's a county up there that's growing in a lot. What I like about that is, is that generally they're big enough that all the consumers aren't necessarily having personal relationships with their funeral directors. The cost of doing business in those communities is not nearly as high as the really big markets. And then the consumer uh, can be persuaded by advertising and delivering outstanding service, they can be persuaded to switch their providers. Got it. It sounds like because you have so many brands, I'm assuming you don't immediately come in and acquire something and then try to rebrand it to Altmeyer or anything like that. No. The Altmeyer funeral homes are where I grew up in Wheeling, West Virginia. And then coming back down to Virginia in the fifth year when we were doing 500 calls, we were losing money because, in my opinion, a discount standalone business is very hard to be profitable just because you have to have such a high volume because you have such low revenue. So we actually changed the model in Virginia from being a discount funeral home to a traditional funeral. We, we took down the sign that said, it's actually Dignity Funeral Services is the name of our corporation, and it was a, the Dignity Group. We switched from that to Altmeyer Funeral Homes, and we changed the price list from discount pricing to traditional funeral home pricing. 
and we went from 500 calls to 400 calls, but we went from losing money to making money because we didn't have the revenue in order to pay our bills. Since then, in the Virginia area, in the Virginia Beach market, we've purchased other discount providers. So I also like, besides the, the market type I just discussed, I also like to have a traditional business and a discount business in the same market so that they're very uh, symbiotic. Basically, yeah. the discount business will provide to the services of people who want very limited services and the traditional funeral homes will su- supply that. And now I'm working those together. So typically now we'll go into a market and buy one of the two, like the discount business, and then try to buy a traditional business or we'll start out with the traditional business and try to buy the discount business, but then have both tiers in a market. Yeah, and I think that's, really smart because that way you can serve families in the way they want and still be the one to like serve them kind of give them you know i feel like oftentimes especially in this day and age there's a very strong like we're going to focus on low cost only and that's going to be our thing you know we don't add services and then you have like the traditional on here and there's like really no bridge between the two so you're either going to do all in on one or all in on the other but you know i would agree with you i think that if you're going to be able to do the marketing or build that community and get that first call, you need to figure out a way to kind of serve them in any way that that family wants to be served. I agree hundred percent with you. So when you do have, do you only have kind of like a two tier view or do you think there's like a third mid tier? Not every market I don't think can support all three tiers, but in the Virginia beach, Newport news, we're on both sides of the Chesapeake Bay here. We have our traditional brands, which are funeral homes, are the Altmeyer Funeral Homes, Bucktrout Funeral Home, which is the oldest funeral home in the United States that's still in operation today. And then we have the Omen Funeral Home, that's in Williamsburg, Bucktrout is, and then the Omen Funeral Home in Chesapeake. And Altmeyer's, there's uh, five locations of Altmeyer's. So that's the traditional brand. The next year down is kind of a limited service funeral home. So it's not as full on as the traditional funeral homes, but it still has a place for private family goodbyes, small services, arrangement room and parking lot. We call that family choice and family choice is like the mid tier. And then when you go below that to the next year down, we own Cremation Society of Virginia. We have Cremation and Funeral Services of Tidewater. There's another brand. We have Coastal Cremation and Funeral Care. And then we also have, it's called Simply Cremation. So the first three that I said, Cremation Society of Virginia, Coastal Cremations, and Cremation and Funeral Services of Tidewater, those three, they all have physical locations where you can walk in and make arrangements. And that Simply Cremation is an online-only provider in this market. So you can only go online. There's no facilities to go into. That's really interesting because a big thing that we hear a lot from full-service brands is that in opening a low-cost brand, they feel like they're cannibalizing their full service brand by offering a low cost brand. What are your thoughts that about the cannibalization of their business? Do you feel like that's accurate? I think that either they're going to cannibalize themselves or somebody's going to cannibalize them, but either way, they're not going to have the business. I see. Got it. Yeah. I, mean, well, I should say either way. Not, one way they're going to have the cannibalized business that they cannibalize themselves on the other way is, is that somebody else is going to cannibalize them and they won't have that business. But one way or the other, the consumer that doesn't want the traditional funeral home will find the alternative brand. So um, mm-hmm. can't beat them, join them. Yeah. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is in serving those different brands, I'm assuming 
that not every family calls the right brand or tier from day one, right? Some mm-hmm. may want more services than you know the brand that they called originally started, or one may call the traditional service, and it's very apparent that they're probably more suited for the lower cost. Do you do a lot of training in your staff and funeral directors in handing off these customers and helping them find the right service that fits what they actually want? What we do is, is it's typical that a hospice or a hospital or a church, some organization that's guiding a family will explain to the family, oh, you want cremation? Well, here's the cheapest cremation that we found. Even though they feel like they're the best church, they feel like they're the best hospice, they feel like they're the best hospital. When it comes to funeral service, they want to direct them to the cheapest price, not the best. So what they'll, they'll, they'll end up at one of our discount brands. And then the family will walk in and say, oh, we're here, you know, we were recommended to come to you, but where, where can we have a visitation? Well, you can't because that's the reason why we're less expensive because of that. Oh, well, we want to have visitation and a service. And we say, oh, okay, well, you know, we have our, our sister company that, you know, is the traditional funeral home. And I can go ahead and make the arrangements here for you there, or you can go over there and make those arrangements. And then what will happen is, is then we'll provide those services at a facility that can meet your needs. And they go, oh, great. And then they do that. Or they say, no, you know, come to think of it. I just want to stay here and we don't need those services. But we always will offer those services to those people. Conversely, though, if somebody says that, hey, the price for your cremation service here at the traditional brand is more than I want to spend. So, well, you know, we have extraordinarily nice facility with outstanding people. We're going to provide you these type of services. We'll do registry books, memorial photos, prayer cards, collage boards do videos, everything that you need in order to do the services on your own. And we support our pricing because we deliver exceptional service out of this outstanding facility with great people. And they go, no, 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 it's all about price for us. Well, then we're going to hope that when they shop the next tier down, that they choose us. Because there's a number of times that they go, no, we want to save money. And then they call around and then they come back to our traditional funeral home. But you don't know who it is. So we don't down refer because you never know. Maybe they want that. And if you don't support that, if you don't support what you're offering and you just down refer, then what could happen is, is you can end up ruining your business going back to the fear of cannibalization. Yeah, I believe if, and I've seen funeral homes go into a market, open a discount brand, let their traditional funeral home directors direct all the families over to the discount brand. And then they just sabotage their funeral. They'll be like, the funeral director will be like, oh, how much is cremation? Well, they didn't even ask them what they want. They didn't ask them if they want to have a funeral service. They didn't ask them if they want to have a memorial service, private family goodbye, how they want to celebrate their life. They just hear the word, how much is cremation? And they go, hang up the phone and call our discount brand, da, 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 and give them the phone number. And then they hang up the phone and they go to their buddy, hey, let's go out to lunch. And then they take a funeral home that was doing, say, 500 calls and drive it down to 250 calls. And then they drive up the cremation business to 250 calls. They get no new calls in the market. They have their same 500 calls as 50% of them are heavily discounted and then they can't pay their bills. Mm-hmm. That's very scary. When the owner's worried about cannibalization, I understand that completely. Because if you sabotage yourself, you will cannibalize yourself and kill, and, and kill yourself. But if you just Pretend when you're on the phone as the discounter, you're doing everything you can to get the call. I mean, I'll pretend actually do it. 
And then when you're on the phone as the funeral home, you do everything you can to get the call at the funeral home, but you got to let the chips fall where they may. You cannot steer to the one brand or the other because you don't know what the consumer is looking for. Got it. In my opinion. You know, I think that's a really good way to think about it or a really smart way to think about it from a, a, more, a more macro business sense, because I think what we've found ourselves in for better or worse, probably for worse for, for death care is that people have been become so price driven and we've been so quick to almost offer it up without exploring further. And I know you have opinions on this, but we've kind of created this separation between the burial and the cremation side of things. Like, what are your thoughts on that? My thoughts on that, like if you could dial back the clock, say 30, 40 years, maybe 40, 50 years, but funeral directors would have somebody call in and say, hey, you know, we want to have cremation. And it was like a unicorn almost. It was like very few people had cremation. They go, oh, okay, well, come on in here, sign this paperwork, and we'll tell you when you can come pick them up in America. They didn't do this in Canada. They didn't do this in New Mexico, Central America, South America. They didn't do this in Europe. It is America. They said, come on in, we sign this paperwork, come in and pick them up and here you go. And then the family who intended to have a visitation or a funeral service or do something was not offered any services. And then they end up going to the church with the urn and the priest are standing in the back of the church or the uh, minister, like the family standing there with the urn and they're like, well, where's the funeral? Director? I said, well, I don't know. You just, didn't offer any services. He just handed me this black box, said, you know, here you go. And then they go, well, I don't have time to do that. Let's form a funeral committee. They'd form lay people at the church who would take up the role of the funeral director because the funeral director did not offer services. And then there you have the impetus of all these direct cremations with no services. I mean, my personal opinion is Americans aren't heathens. They're not not having services. They're just not using the funeral director to have the services. They're going to the country club. They're going to the club at the uh, retirement community they live in, the chapel in their church. They're going to the beach. They're going to the park. They're going somewhere, and they're celebrating the life of their loved one without the use of the funeral director. So it's very hard to take as a funeral director because that's why I got into our profession to serve people. And I think most people in our profession got into our profession to serve people. But the people are looking to other avenues for service because the American funeral director did not participate. They withdrew. Hmm. I'm sure you kind of have a sense, but you do have an online brand. You have the low-cost brand. Do you know if families are or how many are actually doing stuff outside of the service that you're offering? It would be something great to track. I venture to guess it's somewhere north of 50 to 60% are having some sort of services a lot of them will say, hey, can you help us get registry books, memorial folders, prayer cards? Can you run the obituary that we're going to have the service on the beach? You know, we're going to do all this kind of stuff and we're going to go to this church. We're going to have some services, but never kept track of the actual number of the people who were providing the disposition, but they're running their own service. But I think it would be interesting is to go back in time and say, well, yeah, how much is burial? Our funeral is $2,500. That's it? $2,500 barrel? Yeah, all we do is just drive out the cemetery and put you in the hole and call you when it's over. And they go, well, what if I want to have a funeral beforehand? Oh, that's 1000 That's 10000 And then they go, oh, well, we'll just go ahead and have them buried. Like, if we had done that for 40 years, we would have a mass rush on direct burials. And then if every time they said that we want cremation, well, how much is cremation? Oh, well, cremation is eight or $9,000. We have the visitation. We have the funeral service. We have the reception. 
we do all this stuff and we're going to do a great job with cremation and it's, you know, it's eight or $9,000. And then they go, well, how much is burial? Well, that's just 2,500 because we don't do anything. We just put you in the hole in the ground and we'll call you when it's over. But if you kept doing that for like, you know, four decades or five decades, keep telling everybody direct burial is cheap and cremation comes with all the services, we would probably have some massive amount of direct burials going on and we'd be having a dropping cremation rate. Mm-hmm. So you kind of think that based on some of the decisions made at that time, we found ourselves kind of commoditizing cremation a little bit. Absolutely. So as someone who, you know, kind of sees families throughout the spectrum of those that are serving, that are doing celebrations of life and are doing, you know, services and stuff like that, like, what do you think, is there a way to, if we started today, to get us out of that to where all families are having that same conversation where, you know, we're not just focused on disposition anymore? The way out is to offer services to every family. The issue, going back to what you were saying about these not having both tiers, it's very hard if you're a disposition company doing four or 5,000 direct cremations and you don't have the facilities to offer services and you don't have the staff to offer services, it's very hard to start offering the services. On the other side, if you're a traditional funeral home only, you have plenty of the opportunity to offer services, but you don't get the customers who end up calling the direct disposition company. So I think the way out is is having both tiers in the market and making sure every family, every time you offer every services, every service that you have available to offer. Over time, the consumer, I believe, will start looking back to the funeral home, the funeral director, as the path to have a life celebration. A friend of mine, Rick Baldwin, was very involved with funeral homes in Canada. He was with Stewart for a long time, and then he went to Canada. He owned a bunch of funeral homes up there. They had like an 80% cremation rate, but with the 80% cremation rate, they had an 80% service rate. And then in America, instead of fighting the uphill battle, he started with the help of several other gentlemen, but they started Baldwin Brothers in Florida recently. I mean, 10 years ago now, maybe. They grew it tremendously. They're very, very successful, very knowledgeable people. But instead of fighting the tide and trying to offer all these services, he focused on offering a limited service and did a great job at it. Very successful. Yeah. It almost seems like it's going to take like a group effort to do that because no matter as much as like, as you want to have multiple tiers, there's going to be those that only do the low cost who only want to serve that. And then you're going to have the traditional who only want to do that. And so, you know, that middle market is, there's going to be no bridge in that middle, or it's going to be hard to have that bridge without operators like you and people who understand that not every family is a direct creation family that comes in, you know, they are doing services. They are doing other things outside of the funeral home. Mm -hmm. Are there any other existential things that you think, I mean, you obviously see multiple locations, multiple populations, multiple tiers and stuff. Is there anything else that you kind of see that may change the death care landscape as we know it today? I mean, I think a couple of things. One is a huge driver of the direction of funeral service is Service Corporation International for obvious reasons. They're number one by a long shot, but they have every tier. And I mean, from the most elite funeral home to the high volume online only, and they have every tier. If they decide that they want to make a focus to offer services to everybody in every tier, because they do have the facilities to offer those services, and they're, I'm guessing, servicing 
just shy of somewhere between seven to 10% of Americans, they could shift the trend and they have every lever to be extraordinarily competitive. So that's somebody who can positively impact funeral service going forward. But it, it would take them focusing on making sure that every level they offer every service. A yeah. threat to us, I believe, in certain states, because it takes the right states and certain laws, but this is not allowed in Florida, as far as I know. The hospices can't own funeral homes. Funeral homes can't own hospices. But in many states, there's no prohibition to that, where there's high-volume hospice businesses. They're in certificate-of-need states. There's only maybe one or two providers in decently-sized markets. Those hospices could easily, because they tell the family which funeral home to use, which cremation provider to use, and generally, a lot of these families will listen to what their advice is. If they chose to get in and buy their own funeral home, their own cremation business, and send all their business to themselves, I think that they could heavily impact funeral homes in certain markets. Mm-hmm. I want to get a little bit into the management side. I think that we see, obviously, having a lot of customers that span all types of businesses, we see many different management styles. <laughs> I think given what you've grown to, you don't grow to that size and maintain that size without being able to offer consistent, high quality services to families. How do you maintain that considering that you have 53 different rooftops? I mean, I've seen single rooftops that depending on the funeral director that you get, you're going to get a wildly different experience than the other funeral directors sitting next to them. So how do you kind of keep such a consistently high service amongst all of your brands? We're very focused on uh, delivering exceptionally good service. We have what we call our outstanding service board. And the numbers that we uh, derive the outstanding service board from is Johnson Consulting Surveys. Johnson Consulting sends out surveys to every single at-need and pre-need family that we serve. And they ask a bunch of questions. And then we read every survey to all of our funeral directing staff every week. So any survey that comes in in the week, now this isn't like our entire company surveys to their entire staff, but be each group of funeral homes. And so we operate in 14 clusters. So those 53 are in 14 clusters. And those clusters have daily meetings to start the day. But once a week, we have a weekly meeting, which is a little bit more involved than the actual. The daily meeting is for what are we going to do today for the families that we're serving. The weekly meeting is things like how are we doing, how are we running our funeral homes, and so on and so forth. And so in each one of those clusters on any given week, we might have somewhere between three and ten surveys. We have the funeral director who met with the family, read the survey to the rest of the staff. So they have to self Their own survey? Their own survey. You read it out loud. (laughs) But the good thing is, is like 98% of the surveys we receive are rated as superior above average. About 90% is called the NPS score, Net Promoter Score. 90% of the people uh, rate us as uh, would highly recommend. And there's a very high standard to get to an NPS score of 90. Yeah, that's really high. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, we have about 35% or greater return rate. And then 80% 80% of the families we serve, and more like 88% of the families we serve, say that we were about or less than expected. The interesting fact is, is that although it's like... In terms of cost, you mean? In terms of cost, because they ask. The question used to be, are we more about or less than expected? That was the question. Now they've switched it to a value question. For the money you spent, did you receive the goods and services? 
But when it was, were you more about or less than expected? 88% of the people said we were about or less than expected. You ask funeral directors in America, they would think it's the other way around. They would say 88% of the people said it was more than expected. But the reality is, and Johnson, I'm sure uh, Jake Johnson could support me on this, but over 80%, we're closer to 90% of the people say it was about or less than expected. So we have a misconception. I mean, we as funeral directors have a misconception of how people actually perceive cost because mm-hmm. we perceive it as 90% of the people think we're more than expected. They think 90% of the time it was about or less than expected, which I find interesting about funeral services. Well, I would say that that's a testament to the services you provide because I would imagine that if you were to survey them like as they're walking in the door before they've talked to you and then after, those are going to be wildly different. I think it's probably going to start, it would probably be flipped right? 10% of the people coming in are going to think they're going to get more value than they're paying. And then by the time they leave, if they've received amazing service, it flips. But yeah, I mean, I think that's just a testament to that. And the funny thing is, is the ones that say that it was more than expected, like I would say, and I don't have an official number on this, but probably pretty damn close is about 95 to 99% of the people that say it's more than expected. Radius is a 10 out of 10 when it comes to outstanding service and Radius is nine out of 10 or 10 out of 10 is a highly recommend us. So it doesn't correlate that just because it was more than they expected that you did a bad job. It's just, you could have somebody spend a thousand dollars and they could say it was more than expected. The funny thing is, it's funnier is some of the people, a lot of the times the people that say it was more than expected are department of social services. Cause we never turn anybody away for financial need, no matter what. Their Department of Social Services, they paid, the Department of Social Services paid for the service. They paid zero, and it was more than expected. (laughs) (laughs) And on top of that, they found some fault, you know, or something like that. But the people who thought it was more than expected, 9 out of 10 or 10 out of 10, and everything was great. But it's the social services (laughs) that did not pay more than expected. I mean, that's just why 100% is always unattainable. <laughs> there's not, you can't always, there's always going to be those that are not happy. I mean, what do they say that happiness is expectations minus what you actually received or something like that? So you're exceeding that. So uh, one thing is reading surveys every single week. We read all the surveys, we're wildly focused on those surveys. We're also wildly focused on our Google surveys, you know, Google reviews, that is making sure that we answer every Google review, positive or negative, every time. And if there's a negative Google review, we're calling them right away, finding out what expectation they had that wasn't met and seeing if there's any way that we can uh, change their opinion of us. But we're very yeah. focused on that. I'm very focused on, in every market we're in, I want the absolute best funeral directors on our team. So we try to always have the best pay, the best benefits, the best schedule, the best people, and hoard them all up on our team and not being afraid to terminate somebody if they don't share that belief. This might be a controversial question, but do you have trouble filling spots? Two things. One is, no, I don't think right now we have any open spots in our company. We have about 120 directors. I mean, we might have one or two because there's always, you know, somebody's retiring or somebody's coming in or something like that. But so the answer on the filling them, ultimately the answer is no. Trying to find an outstanding person. There are very few funeral directors out there looking for a job. I don't even know if there's any, but there's very few funeral directors out there looking for a job. So when you do have a job opening, trying to find a funeral director is not easy. I'm not saying that's easy at all because 
in the world of funeral service right now. And I think that every owner or everybody running any funeral home would support me in that is, is that there is less funeral directors than there is demand. We have a lot of demand for funeral directors and not many funeral directors. So finding the right one or the good one is very hard because if they're good, they're happy somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Getting them to leave where they're at and come to you is not an easy task. You'd be surprised. I mean, it does sound like, you know, when you hear rumblings of people having a hard time hiring and sometimes you look at like comp packages and what they offer and what the expectations of that job are, they're pretty far off. I think one of the things that I was curious about is you did mention that you do offer highly competitive salaries and benefits and stuff like that. And I think that is one of the things that is an indication of how quickly you can fill spots. You know, obviously finding the right person can take time sometimes, but actually getting those applications in usually is <laughs> attracted to uh, higher comps and good benefits. And paying benefits are extraordinarily important, but you know, the benefits you have typically you most people would want is health, life, disability, 401k, vision, dental, gym membership, you know, things like that to offer them excellent benefits. But that only goes so far. One thing going back to the markets we're in and everything, trying to stay in these mid-tier markets, because if you get small markets, small funeral homes, it's really hard because, and anybody working in a small town in a smaller funeral home knows, and there's only like maybe somewhere between two and four funeral directors. So you're on call a lot. That is not easy. So although we do have some markets where we have smaller markets and fewer funeral directors, it's hard to offer them high quality life. And we do everything we can to make sure that we have high quality life in those areas. The middle markets offer enough volume of service. And if you have enough market share, then you can have a team of like, say, six people plus a manager plus a care center manager. So that what you develop into is, is you're on call once a week, higher quality of life. Besides being on call once a week, what we have, if you're done with your work, you can go home early in the day. That's something we try to do. When it's your day off, it's your day off. If it's your vacation, it's your vacation. We've focused heavily. Now, we have outstanding funeral directors who maybe their day off and they want to come in and work with a family because they know them and they feel like that they're going to serve them the best. And then we'll comp them either a comp day or additional compensation for coming in on their day off. But what we do is focus on quality of life. So. Or, I mean, so paying benefits only gets you so far, but quality of life is big for anyone. And frankly, coming out of mortuary school, going to a funeral home that was three locations, doing 300 calls and being one of three funeral directors in a three-man schedule and being on two out of three weekends. And my friends are getting married and things are going on in life. And when you switch a weekend because you want to go to a wedding and you got to work five weekends in a row to make the switch, that's not easy. So having that experience... When we grew, I had a very focused on trying to make sure, and I worked with my dad on that, very focused. We made sure that we wanted to have a big enough base of business where we could have quality of life be a top priority of ours. I think that's very noteworthy, as you see. I mean, we see in the market itself, these businesses that are starting to make people come back will lose some of their workforce because they don't want to come back to the office. Just like you know, if you can, people start to prefer quality of life over comp sometimes or uh, benefits. I think benefits are important, but yeah, like if you mm -hmm. can uh, offer some time uh, other advantages, it'll outweigh some of the pure dollars or something. Absolutely. If running 
all these funeral homes and crematories and pet cemeteries weren't enough. You also have a brand called Treasured Memories that does a few different things. You don't have to give us like a rundown. We can talk about why, you know, some of the things in Treasured Memories you did, but like what was Treasured Memories created for? Treasured Memories is created when Batesville Casket Company sold Forethought. And, uh, you know, I understand that it's a business decision and they have to make what's the best business decision of their stockholders. But when they did, the people who purchased Forethought decided that in the best interest of them, which is fine, you know, it's their company, to not pay growth on the policies and that they would keep the growth for uh, developing and growing the insurance business into annuities and other products to other companies. And that left the funeral directors that had a lot of money in forethought faced with shortfalls in the future. And so when I saw that, I was like, okay, how are we going to deal with in the future if there's no growth in these policies? Mm-hmm. Let's just say the policy, because it's an easy number to deal with, $10,000 policy, and then it grows normally say 3% a year. So that's, you know, whatever that is, $30 a year. And uh, for 10 years and you have 300 additional dollars. So what happens is, is that you have additional funds. So what would happen is, is that if you had a company that would be not paying any growth at all, then you would be developing shortfalls because your costs would be going up. Yeah. But you're actually, I'm I'm wrong on that, $300 a year. I, I apologize. So you're not paying because I knew something was off there. You're not paying the 3% growth, which is $300 a year. 10 years later, that's $3,000 of growth. So in 10 years, when your funeral went from 10,000 to 13,000, then you have the money there. You have the cost adjustment over time. If I, you know, if the CPI runs at 3% over a long period of time, you have your cost adjustment there in order to cover it. But I looked in the future and said, okay, if we have $30 million of insured policies with forethought, which we did, and we were going to be short $900,000 a year. In the future, we were going to have shortfalls of a million to $2 million a year in shortfalls. So I was like, okay, what are we going to do? Well, you can raise prices, lower expenses, unless you're going to close your buildings and get rid of your cars. The only expenses you can reduce are your people. So it's either get rid of people or raise prices or a combination thereof. So I was like, okay, well, maybe there's a third leg of the stool that we can do. We can develop a uh, consulting company that we can work with other funeral homes as an organization. And we called it Treasured Memories. And Treasured Memories is a organization of independent funeral homes. That's um, 200, I think we have 210 owners. It's about 600 rooftops and we represent about 95,000 calls a year. So that 95,000 calls and that group of funeral directors together, we can achieve more. So basically what we can do is, is we can offer, we treasure members can offer to them higher commissions when it comes to insurance funding. We can offer them the ability to help them with contact management systems, direct mail services, hiring, training, and helping them run their preemie company. So that is the number one focus. Then we also on a buying side, we can help them get a better offerings from their suppliers where we use caskets, cell phones, bombing fluids, products that you use in your supply, in your uh, prep rooms. We're looking into doing group purchasing of uh, 401k, also offer mm. retirements. It's really hard to do group health insurance because people who have a healthy pool don't need you and the people who don't have a healthy pool want to join. And so you can be de- anti-selected on health insurance. So I don't know if that's feasible. 
but we have a group of funeral homes that can achieve more together in their purchasing and the supplier relationships. I believe we do a great job there. But then the other thing we did is, is we started services that we needed in our own funeral home. We do online identification of deceased for our cremation businesses and our cremations anywhere. We have Treasure Memory Secure View. It's an online system. It's a highly secure way to get families confirming that that is, in fact, a loved one. We've had in our own funeral homes send out a picture to a family member, and they said, yeah, that's not my mom. We're like, no, it's your mom. We went to the hospital and picked your mom up, and they were she was tagged there. We tagged her there. Yeah, that's your mom. We're like, no, it's not. She has a birthmark on her face. That is not our mom. And then so, lo and behold, the hospital gave us the wrong person. So... We have Treasure Memories Secure View. We have Treasure Memories Travel Protection. We have a travel protection offering that find unique in funeral service because you can set the price that you feel is the best price for travel services, travel protection services. And then the one that I'm most excited about, it's kind of like GoFundMe. I was at a uh, study group and one of the people at the study group said, the best thing I'm doing now is using GoFundMe. I was like, there is no way. I cannot go into the community where I live and say, Hey, let's raise money for Timmy's service because he passed away unexpectedly because the funeral bill is so high. We need an order to get that bill paid so that uh, Jimmy can have a nice life. I couldn't envision funeral homes asking their community to raise money to help pay the bills for them. It's self-serving. I was thinking there's not a shot. So I went back to our funeral homes and I started asking the funeral directors that work with us, have you ever heard of GoFundMe? And they're like, oh yeah, we just had this young boy that was killed by a pit bull. We donated the service. We donated all the services. We just asked the family to pay the cash advances, which were $500. It was a cremation with a memorial service. So we donated a $5,000 service. The family had to come up with the money for other people, the cash advances. And they went on GoFundMe and said, hey, our son passed away and Mean Funeral Home won't have the service until, until the bills paid. So I was like, oh, that was terrible. And then I went to another one of our funerals. You guys ever heard GoFundMe? Oh, yeah, yeah. We just had this money raised on GoFundMe and it was $10,000. And then when they raised the money, so that's what we're going to use to pay the funeral bill. But they never came in and used the money to pay the funeral bill. And we got stuck for the funeral bill. Wow. And then I went to another person. I said, you guys ever heard GoFundMe? Oh, yeah, yeah. We've heard of it. It's great. We get the family alone to make payments to provide their funeral services. And the family didn't know how they were going to come up with the funds. So the funeral director created a fund, raised the money in four days and paid it off. So that was a good story. But so the thing was, though, is, is whether I liked it or not, we were using GoFundMe. I mean, I was sitting there in the study group thinking there's no way we're going to use it. And every day it's being used in positive and negative ways. We established Treasured Memories Community Funding and it's tmcfunding.com. And when we did is what we do is, is we go out in the community and say, let, let's not just focus on ourself, the funeral home. Let's focus on the community in two ways. One is the family in need doesn't just need to have their funeral bill paid for. They usually have travel expenses. They may have uh, personal expenses of how am I going to pay my utilities now that my father's died and left these three young children at home. What are we going to do about paying the medical expenses? We had a whole bunch of medical expenses in the last few days before he died. So then the fund isn't self-serving for the funeral home. Like, how am I going to pay the funeral home? The fund is for the funeral home to really truly help the family. That's on the helping the family side. But then you have a whole bunch of people, more like probably 75 or 80% of the people, they're not worried about themselves because they have the wherewithal, they had an insurance policy or something to have their funeral paid for. They want to have the money paid to the SPCA 
to the hospice, to the local university or high school or something. They want to actually raise money for the community. It's an opportunity for the funeral home to help out that family, getting a complete list of all the donors, getting a list of knowing why they're raising the money. Like, what was the purpose? The hospice was really nice to me. The school really made a big difference in my life. So we raise these funds that the family then can give to the specific organization they want to donate the money to. But they also get a complete list of the donors and they can write thank you notes to them versus having donors just out there in the world sending the money in randomly and they never even know that it occurred. So basically, Treasure Memories offers a bunch of different things. We're just happy to provide it as a tool for all funeral directors to use. Mm-hmm. That's really amazing. You didn't feel like you were busy enough, so you had to <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you obviously have done a lot of impressive things, and I can't imagine. What does your day-to-day look like, personally? Well, I travel a lot. Mm-hmm. I get up every day and I go to work. I live in Virginia Beach. I go to work there usually on Mondays, and I travel Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday going to our funeral homes because I want to be very present so that people see me multiple times a year and know that it's a personal service business and I want to make sure that we deliver outstanding service. So if I'm willing to go there and visit with our staff and ask them, you know, what are the needs that we have and how can we accomplish those? They know that I care and I think it makes a difference for them and they care. I've traveled every week since year 2000, pretty much. I mean, there's a rare few exceptions and COVID was not one of them. I traveled every week during COVID as well because staying home saying, oh, COVID is a problem. I can't travel. Well, I mean, funeral service didn't stop. I mean, actually it was busier. So funeral directors couldn't just say we're closed. A lot of businesses could close. Hospitals couldn't close. Funeral homes couldn't close. A lot of businesses couldn't close. But if we were going to stay open, I was going to keep traveling and making sure that the people knew that we needed to deliver outstanding service at a very critical time. So I travel a lot, very involved with my family. My wife is outstanding. I have three children who are outstanding. They um, two boys and a girl. When they were in like little league stuff, like soccer and lacrosse and basketball and just different different sports, I coached a lot of flag football. I coached a lot of their little league sports until they moved on to more serious levels of sports. So I'm very involved with them. Like I like to spend time at home. So uh, travel each week, usually Tuesday and Wednesday night, and the other nights I'm at home and involved with my family. Nice. So. Are any of the kids going to be the fifth generation or? Good question. The oldest is a senior in college this year. Next is sophomore. And my youngest is a um, junior in high school. So none of them yet have chosen that path. My two older ones have helped me out a lot, you know, on their breaks, their summer breaks. And, you know, over uh, Christmas and all, they've worked in and around the funeral homes, done an outstanding job. Everybody's different. I've, I've watched different families make different decisions, but I'm an advocate of, I've seen done, which is if you want to come back and work here in our company is you need to go somewhere else and work two years and make sure that you get an experience of working for somebody else other than us. I personally didn't follow that path. I came back and started working (laughs) right away. My dad is an outstanding person, very, very nice person, but there was no slacking. There was no, you're the owner's son, so you have any special treatment. That was not the case. I do believe I could have benefited from working for somebody else for a couple of years as well. Yeah. I mean, I always think outside perspective helps give you a broader knowledge of situations and understanding. So I actually think that's a really good uh, plan. So what's next for, what do you call it, the Dignity, like Altmeyer 
family. Well, all of our homes is the name is our family name, obviously. We have three companies. One is Altmeyer Funeral Homes. Dignity Funeral Services, Inc. was established when we started doing the discount businesses. Now as our funeral homes in Virginia, North Carolina, and Florida. Altmeyer's is in West Virginia and Ohio. So that's those two. The third business is Martin Steadfast Agency, Inc., which is our insurance agency, which is Treasured Memories. We have these three companies. So we have basically our Treasured Memories organization and then our funeral home companies. And what's next? I guess we'll be just to continue to focus on outstanding service to continue to grow where we see that it's a good cultural fit. That makes a big difference is to make sure that when you're buying any funeral service company that you're pairing yourself up with somebody who shares the same culture as you do yeah. and uh, continue to um, grow slowly but surely. When you think about like acquiring and stuff, are you actively doing that? Or are you kind of, if things come along, you consider it or are you, you have like a team or are you personally like actively always looking to see what's on sale, like what's up for acquisition or? We're always keeping our ears open. We're always looking, but we don't, once again, we're not a public company, so I can't go yeah. issue stock and raise funds and do it that way. So we have to do it, you know, basically cautiously and focused over time, but typically we grow somewhere between one and three funeral homes a year. So in order to do that, you have to always be looking, yeah. but we don't have acquisition department or anything like that. Or, you know, I'm not spending most of my day thinking about that. I'm very focused on, once again, culture, people who, who fit with us and looking primarily where we already are or close by. I'm not trying to see if I can travel to all over the place just we're basically mid-atlantic to florida is our geographic area most likely we'll stay in that footprint and we would go outside of that footprint but it would have to be a business that was big enough to be self-supporting you're not looking over to the west coast trying to open anything anytime soon not unless once again it was something that was self-supporting <laughs> where and what i mean by that is this a lot of funeral home acquisitions are you have a group of funeral homes and you buy another person that is in your market that can be integrated with your cluster. A lot of that goes on in the United States. If you're going to go outside of that model, in my opinion, you have to have at least in top line revenue somewhere around $2 million a year at a minimum to be a standalone business because you have to have enough money to pay somebody that's going to run it like an owner would run it. And then you, and if it's just a small family business, by the time you get done paying it to have somebody run it like an owner, then that all the money's gone because it's a, it's a smaller business. And that's yeah. why an owner will work as hard as they do because they'll make a very nice livelihood. If you buy an, a small funeral home and then you pay somebody to worry about it the way it needs to be worried about if you want to be successful, you may not have very much money left over. But if you have a business that's doing more than $2 million on the top line, there's enough money there to pay somebody to do an outstanding job and run it. This is a rule of thumb. I mean, there's no exact science to that, but this is my, my opinion. Yeah. No. Awesome. So there's a question that we, we like to ask all our guests. What does funeral service look like in 10 years? So as someone who sees a lot now, what do you think this is going to look like in 10 years? Well, I think 10 years from now, we will be at the 80% cremation rate. I think pretty much consensus is, is that it'll level off at 80% because some people want to be buried, some people want to be cremated. But the thing is, is I do believe that we will be in a position where we're at 80% cremation. My hope for funeral service is, is that funeral directors across America understand with an 80% disposition rate of cremation, 
that we need to get in the game and make sure that we're delivering services to that 80%, not just providing the disposition, but actually being involved in delivering exceptional service. I'm not sure about that. One thing that I always harp on, and hopefully people who get this podcast, I know you have a lot of viewers and a lot of people who watch this podcast, is, is when people ask you, what do you do? Do not say I'm in the funeral industry because we don't manufacture from raw materials. We are in the funeral profession. I don't say I'm in the accounting industry. I don't say I'm in the doctor or medical industry. I don't say that, you know, I'm in whatever the real estate industry. If we don't look at ourselves as professionals, nobody will. But if we keep saying industry, that is very coincides with disposition. Like you run a crematory oven, that's industrious in a kind of a way. It's a commodity in a kind of a way. And if we keep focusing and saying that we're in the funeral industry, then what will happen is, is we will be, that'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy and we will be doing all direct disposition. If we want to be successful and we want to be part of the services that we're providing, my personal belief is we all sort of have to be saying, not just the words coming out of our mouth, has to say, I'm in the funeral profession and the professional services that I offer are these. And so my hope for 10 years from now is, is that we really get into the game and start offering the services that people want. I think that's well said. I think I agree with that sentiment. Cool. Thanks. Was there anything else that you would like to mention or talk about? Yes. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you for allowing me to be on your uh, show today. Thank you for being a leader in our profession. Thank you for uh, going out there and uh, going to places where other people didn't pursue before and pushing everybody's thought process because you do an outstanding job. Thank you very much. Oh, well, thank you very much. And yeah, no, I really appreciate, <laughs> appreciate that. And then I uh, thank you for joining us here. I think the success of your business is not an accident. And it's just a testament to, you know, I think we've seen today just on stories that you've shared how much you do care about the families. It's not just the business. Obviously, you are smart in the business side of things, but it really is about the service. It is really about providing what families want, not necessarily what you think they want or what you want them to want. It's really what they want, and you are there to offer it to them in, in the best and highest quality possible. So, no, I really appreciate it, and I remain impressed with everything that you've done and the way you run things. So thank you very much. Thank you, Tyler. I hope you have a great day. So for the Direct Podcast, I'm Tyler Yamasaki, and we'll catch you later. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you ever want to know more, please find us at directcremation.com. 